together. She says, the closer we get to Christmas, the more tempted we are to retreat to the cozy, imagined world of our childhood. The suggestion is that the dream is behind us. The way to happiness is to return to that idealized past. Advent is exactly the opposite of all this. Nostalgia and sentiment play no part in the season. There were no golden days of yore. Advent refuses to dwell in a past that never was. Advent is about the... Which is good news for God's Old Testament people during the days of Zephaniah as they had been captured and oppressed severely by the Assyrians. And at the time when Zephaniah is prophesying, the Assyrian reign was starting to lose a little steam and gusto, yet God's people were clearly, as Isaiah says, walking in darkness. They, in many ways, were walking in a darkness that they had created for themselves, which should sound familiar to us as well. But then they were also walking in a darkness that was created in the world at large. They were broken people living in a broken world, and much of what characterized them was not nice and sweet, but it was really sad and it was dark, and it was hostile. And that's the world that Zephaniah speaks words of comfort and gospel into. And in fact, it's that characteristic. It's those characteristics, darkness, hostility, sorrow, that the Messiah comes, that the good news comes to us in the midst of this tension So if you would, stand with me this morning as we hear from the prophet Zephaniah from chapter 3. Up until this point, this concludes his book, and up until until now, he has been speaking oracles of judgment, and then he ends here with an oracle of salvation. Would you hear the word of the Lord from Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 14? Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout! O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The holidays and Christmas specifically bring opportunities for traditions 
to be practiced, but not only traditions to be practiced, it also seems that Christmas and the holidays bring opportunities for stories to become legend among families and stories to be told and retold. I'm sure that you have these stories hearing from your families over the past, and I'm sure you are even creating stories right now in your own lives that tend to come up around Christmas. You remember that Christmas when? You remember that one time when you gave me that gift? Or you remember that time when we took this trip? Traditions come up. Stories come up. One such story that lives in legend and lore, though it's small, in my family has to do with my father when he was a child. He was one of four boys, and so when it came time to buy a Christmas present for their mother, it was a big deal. And so my grandfather would get the four boys together, and they would decide what they were going to get for their mother. And then after they got what they were going to get for their mother, they were sworn to secrecy to not tell what they were going to get, you know, what they got, the gift. And I'm sure you've dealt with this before. I have funny stories in my own uh, experience, particularly when my children were younger, doing this very thing. And you know what it's like for a child to keep a secret, especially about something that they're excited about. And so my dad was a young boy at this time, under 10 years old, and he was excited about this gift that they had collectively gotten for his mother. And it was all he could do to not shout out to her every time he saw her before Christmas what it is that they got. But his dad was a stern man, and he was very clear that he was not to tell at all what the gift was. Well, one day, my father was in a scuffle with his brothers and left that scuffle in the house upset. And he was crying and, you know, kind of sobbing and needing comfort. And his mother, my grandmother, came to him and said, Joe, are you okay? And he was just crying and crying. And she said, Joe, what is it? And he said, it's a red billfold. (laughs) Of course, she wasn't asking what the gift was. She was asking what was wrong with him. And so it's been fun to hear this story for years and years throughout my family. But the point is, oftentimes, it's more exciting to give a gift than it is to receive a gift. So much so that it's really hard to hold in the surprise or the gift that we have for someone. And this is exactly what God does for us in Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3 is a chapter about joy, and it is a call for Christians, for God's people, to rejoice. But something we need to be clear about from the beginning in Zephaniah chapter 3, the primary source of joy in Zephaniah chapter 3 is not from us. The primary source of joy in Zephaniah chapter 3 is from God. Zephaniah chapter 3 is God giving his people the gift of joy in the midst of sadness, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of sin and darkness. God proclaims through his prophet this unbelievable gift of joy. It's the main thing I want us to see from Zephaniah chapter 3 this morning is this counterintuitive reality that God rejoices in his people. Zephaniah chapter 3 is a proclamation of joy about God's joy over his people. You see, fundamentally, the gospel is not about our joy. 
for God. That, once again, sounds like good advice. No, we have to generate and well up joy, especially during this time of year, whether we feel like it or not, for all the good that God has done for us, for sending His Son, etc., which is all good, except oftentimes it's hard for us to self-generate joy, especially when we experience sadness. But Zephaniah chapter 3 is a proclamation that tells us it's not about the joy that you generate towards God. The gospel is a proclamation and it is good news about God's joy for you. We really struggle with joy, not only because we tend to fixate selfishly and self-centeredly and end up being moralistic and even legalistic about our relationship with God being centered around our joy... We clearly have a convoluted relationship with joy in that way. We also miss the fact that joy that God gives us, and then we reflexively are able to return to Him. I mean, verse 14 in Zephaniah 3 does say, Rejoice in the Lord. That's an imperative statement. But then the rest of the text, from verse 14 through the end, Give us why we should rejoice in the Lord. And it's as simple as this. We should rejoice in the Lord because God first and foremost rejoices in us. You see, it's easy for us to think about joy as it's attached to circumstances. But what if our circumstances aren't joyful? If we attach our joy, let's just say, I don't know, to finances. And let's look at the world financial markets. How much joy are you feeling this month when it comes to the financial markets? Or how much joy do we feel when we have to deal with, even as I prayed earlier, grief and loss of loved ones around the holidays? If joy is purely circumstantial, then that's problematic. Or what about the relational pain that we live in that clearly is not joyful? Or let's take this, what even about our own sin? If joy is based on circumstances, our own sin clearly does not create a joyous experience. That's the issue that God's Old Testament people were living in during Zephaniah's days. They were syncretistic in their worship, and it created for them distance and rebellion for God. They would take things that were true about God and mix it with things that were not true and that were more true culturally. I don't know. It would be like taking the gospel and politics and syncretistically worshiping these two things. Or the gospel and materialism. When we do that, it will no doubt create distance and sorrow. And if we base our joy on circumstances, it's going to be very difficult for us to truly rejoice even though we see God rejoicing in us. One commentator, Gordon Fee, says this, Joy is how believers who know Christ and whose futures are guaranteed by Christ respond in the context of present difficulties, not because they like to suffer, but because their joy is in the Lord. But joy is not a feeling. Joy is an activity. Above everything else, joy is is the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. Joy, above all else, is the distinctive mark of a believer. 
But once again, it can't be joy that's based on circumstances, nor can it be self-generated joy. It's got to be this joy that is given to us from God himself who rejoices in us. This world needs joy. Real joy. Lasting hope. True peace. Real light. Because we live not only in a sad time, not only in a dark time, but we live in a highly cynical time. And the truth is, we're cynical. Our lives oftentimes are more laced with sarcasm than they are intimacy. And then we wonder why we feel distance and tension and we lack joy. In fact, it's really a poor apologetic for an unbelieving world for Christians to lack joy and for Christians to be so cynical. One scholar says this, and it's at the front of your bulletin as well. From its very beginning, Christianity has been a proclamation of joy. Without the proclamation of this joy, Christianity is incomprehensible. It is only as joy that the church was victorious in the world. And it lost the world when it lost that joy and ceased to be a credible witness to it. Of all accusations, of all accusations against Christians, the most terrible was uttered by Nietzsche when he said, Christians have no joy. So how do we find joy? We look at Zephaniah chapter 3 and we realize that it's not about us and it's not about our joy and it's not about joyful circumstances. It's about God's joy for his people. So much so that this text tells us that God has so much joy over his people that he sings over us. What does it feel like to be sung over? I'll tell you what it feels like. Awkward. We all experience this once a year, right? Or hopefully you experience this once a year. When some group, your family, friends, your office, I don't know, sings happy birthday to you, right? Like no one cannot feel some degree of awkwardness during this moment. But one of the reasons that we feel awkward, regardless of how like culturally contrived this practice might be, it really is a moment of intimate affirmation and focus upon you that results in people singing over you. And that's what's going on in Zephaniah chapter 3, except it's unbelievable Because it's not about God's people singing praises to Him. Hear me. It is about God singing praises to His people. Now let's flesh this out a little bit more. And we'll move through these um, with some speed. Because honestly, I don't want to take away the simplicity of what I just said. This is about God delighting in His people. Period. This is about God singing over his people. This is about God having joy in his people. And then I want us to see in a little more detail how that joy is manifested in this text. We see God's joy manifested in his people as he sings over them through him showing mercy, justice, embrace, and restoration. 
God rejoices in his people by showing mercy, by showing justice, by showing embrace, and by showing restoration. The text tells us right after verse 14 that God, because of his joy, takes away punishment of his people who had been bad. I mean, once again, they were indifferent, they were skeptical, and they were syncretistic in their worship, just to name a few things. And as a result of this, they'd been taken under oppression by foreigners. They had rebelled. There was great distance geographically, relationally, and spiritually between them. And they were under a seat of judgment. Yet Zephaniah 3 says, God will show mercy. O. Palmer Robertson says this, that the Almighty God should derive delight from His own creation is significant in and of itself, but that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner is incomprehensible. How could the Holy satisfy Himself contentedly in the loving contemplation of the unholy? How could the Holy with content, satisfy himself as he contemplates me and you. He can do that because he's merciful. No more let sins and sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Mm, I don't know. As far as the curse is found. God has joy in us, therefore He shows us mercy. God has joy in us, and therefore He shows us justice. This is what we all long for. In many ways, we wake up each day seeking justice, longing for justice, for things to be made right, for things to be the way they're supposed to be, for ourselves to be the way we're supposed to be. Yet we live in a world where things are not, and we are not. And we oftentimes try to take justice into our own hands. And that never goes well. But we don't need to do that. Because of God's joy, He actually not only shows us mercy, but He shows us justice. The text tells us in multiple ways that He will turn back our enemies. That He will clear the way or clear away our enemies. He will deal with our oppressors. We live in a world that longs for justice because we live in a world that is unjust. We live in a world where things like racism and sexism reign supreme. We live in a world where the unborn are not protected and there's a loss of the sanctity of life. We live in a world where human beings are sold and trafficked. We live in a world that is crying for and longing for justice. We live in a world where greed overcompensates for need. And we're longing for justice in our own lives and in our culture at large. And because of God's joy, the gospel proclaims to us that God will bring justice for His people, that God will turn away and turn back our enemies and our oppressors. But also, because of God's joy, the text tells us that He will embrace us There is this very theme in this text of gathering and welcoming. God is bringing His people together because they are spread out. 
They're literally geographically spread out. If you've read the Old Testament historically before, the Old Testament will refer to the diaspora. God's people were meant to be, in the beginning, literally, physically, even geographically at that time in the Old Testament, though no longer true today, in my opinion. They were meant to be unified and one. They were not. They were meant to be relationally unified and one. They were not. There were factions among them. And in fact, so much so that the Old Testament tells us the thing that God hates the most out of all things, there are degrees of sin. We could talk about that later. Proverbs tells us the thing that God hates the most is dissension among Christians. And God's Old Testament people had this in spades. They were turned against him. They were turned against each, turned against each other. They experienced geographical, relational, and then ultimately spiritual separation from God. But because of his love, God tells us in this text that he will gather. He will bring his people home. He will embrace them. He will welcome them. And then specifically, the text tells us that he will embrace those who mourn. Is there anything better for mourning than embrace? The answer is no. Other prophets talk about this. I love the prophet Joel in chapter 2, verse 25, where the prophet that God proclaims through the prophet Joel, I will restore all the years that the locusts have eaten. That's what we all really long for in life, by the way. We've all experienced metaphorically years, whether it be literal or figurative, years that the locusts have eaten. We're longing for God to repay those years that the locust of death has eaten, that the locust of addiction has eaten, that the locust of physical ailments and disease have eaten. We're longing for those years to be repaid. And the text tells us that God will gather and he will make things right. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, where he talks about people trying to fathom this idea in the new heavens and the new earth of just forgetting about all the hard things. And I think Lewis, and of course all this is a mystery, but I love the way he describes it. He says it's actually not so much that you're going to forget the hard things. What's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth is things are going to start to work backwards. And the things that were hard and wrong and bad, God will start to undo and make all sad things become untrue. Sally Lloyd-Jones and Tolkien both say this. And that's what Joel's talking about. And that's what Zephaniah is prophesying about here to God's people and us here today. Because God loves us, because he has joy in us, he shows us mercy, he shows us justice, and he shows us embrace like a beautiful embrace, like a Luke 15 type of embrace. But he doesn't only embrace those who mourn, he also embraces the outcast. You know, Jesus says this over and over, and we see the the foundation being laid for this in the Old Testament. Christ says, I didn't come for the righteous, just to be clear. I did not come for the righteous. I came for the unrighteous. 
I came for sinners. I did not come for those who are well. I came for the sick. And in fact, he gets so succinct in Luke 19, verse 10, where he simply says, hey, listen, I came to do this, to seek and to save the lost. Isaiah says he was numbered with the transgressors. Hopefully, you number yourself with the transgressors, by the way. Because if not, what the text tells us is that Christ does not number himself with you. Because Jesus is with the transgressors. Jesus is with the sick and the lame and the outcast. And Zephaniah gives a promise through God's joy that he will gather the mourners and the outcast to himself. Why? Because it gives him great joy to do so. Lastly, we see that through God's joy, he promises in this text to restore. And I see this restoration really happening in two ways. One, he tells us at the end, he talks about this idea of being renowned, which let's just go ahead and confess, we all want to be renowned. I mean, even if that's not really your personality, your introvert or whatever, you want to be renowned. Everybody wants to make a name for themselves. You might want to do so quietly, but you want to make a name for yourself. Others of us a little more explicit in the way in which we want to make a name for ourselves and make ourselves be renowned. How's that endeavor going? But we don't need to do it. That's one of the things I love about the gospel. So much of the gospel is stop. Quit trying to make a name for yourself. Zephaniah chapter 3 out of God's joy promises that he will give us a name. In fact, he specifically says he will take away your shame and he will give you a new name and that new name will be one that is renowned. John Newton wrote, of course, Amazing Grace in a compilation of hymns called The Only Hymns, but also another hymn that's in that same compilation that's not as well known as Amazing Grace is a song entitled, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God, God whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou may smile at all thy foes. I'm going to read one more part of the song, but I've got to ask you this. Who is thee in Newton's hymn? Glorious things of thee are spoken. At first glance, surely we think glorious things of God are spoken, which is true. Interestingly enough, did you catch what Newton writes? Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Zion is not God. Zion is God's people. And so Newton writes this song saying, glorious things of God's people are spoken. Spoken by whom? God. He goes on in the hymn to write this. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. It's an amazing thought that glorious things of you are spoken by God. He sings over you with rejoicing and praise. 
He sings praise songs about you. He sings worship songs about you. Where? Zephaniah chapter 3 is a worship song. God is the author and you're the recipient in Christ. The gospel is ultimately about a proclamation of his joy. Not only does he give us a new net, not only does he restore our name, but he restores our fortune. Did you see this here at the end, verse 20? At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praise among all the peoples of the earth. Once again, he's talking about you. It's amazing. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is what Advent's about. This is our hope. It's a hope for restoration. It's a promise through God giving his gift of joy. And when we think about this, Christ sent his son, and as a result of him sending his son, we have restoration and new life. But let's be clear about something. God does not love us because he sent his son. God sent his son because he loves us. Do you understand the difference? God does not love us because he sent his son to live and die for us. Rather, the gospel tells us because God loves us, he sent his son to live and die for us. A closing question of application because this is really what I want us to leave with. What would it feel like in your heart to know that God not only accepts you, but He richly enjoys you? Is that too simple? What would it feel like in your heart to know that God not only accepts you, but He enjoys you? Zephaniah chapter 3 is about God's enjoyment of his people that is manifested in a song. And you know what that song does? It melts our hearts and it knits them to him. I've told this story before, so I don't know if I should apologize for telling it again. I think I will not because it's so good. In 2004, on Saturday Night Live, Luke Wilson was hosting Saturday Night Live and the musical guest was a band named U2. U2 plays the obligatory two songs on Saturday Night Live as all bands did and do. Uh, in that kind of, you know, schedule. Uh, but as it were, the show wrapped up slightly early, and you 2 and the boys, Bono, was on the stage, and he asked, I don't know who he was asking exactly, if people wanted to hear one more. And of course, everybody, including the cast and the crew, exclaimed yes. And so Bono at this point breaks into, and the edge breaks into the fantastic song, I Will Follow. And there is this frenzy that's created in this whole environment as people kind of are stewing around and the credits are rolling, but the camera is still rolling at this point. And U2 has got everybody, and Bono in his just unbelievable way has everybody like in the palm of his hand, including the cast and crew of Saturday Night Live. And at one point in the midst of all this joyous fury keeping in mind all the things that we know to be true just about our world at large, about ourselves, and let's just say even more about the cast and crew of Saturday Night Live. 
who I think it would be safe to say struggle with cynicism and are in need of true joy. At one point in the midst of this environment, Bono comes over and he's singing and he grabs Amy Poehler and he hugs her and he's got his arm around her neck and he's singing, I will follow. And Amy Poehler loses it. Because here's the deal. There's nothing like being embraced and sung over with joy to melt your heart. And that's what God's doing for us in Zephaniah chapter 3. He is melting our hearts, drawing us to Him, giving us His joy. And that's good news. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for this text. It really is unbelievable the more I even just sit here and talk about it and think about it. Our resistance to it is strong because we're moralistic and we're legalistic and we think it's up to us. Forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that the gospel is about our joy for you. Help us to receive in a new way, maybe even today, maybe for the first time, that the truth and the proclamation of the gospel, the good news is about your joy for us. So much so that you sing over us with praises. I pray that that would sink in deeply today and that we would know truly and intimately that you don't just accept us, but that you deeply enjoy us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.